0: Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast
1: is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board.
2: Hey everyone, welcome to Dan Snow's History here. I've got a proper legend on the podcast today, Greg Jenner. He is known to everybody. He's a great uh, TV guy. He makes historical advice the horrible histories. He is a podcast legend. He's got it all going on. And he's a, a wonderful public historian, very active on social media. He likes to hunt down the fake history. He likes to provide context, he likes to get involved. In fact, I don't think he ever sleeps. He tweets so much, so regularly around the clock. It's a bit suspicious. He may have developed an AI tweet, but I should have asked him in this long interview that I conducted. Huh. You always think of things you should have said. The French call that les mots d'escalier. Words on the stairs. Stair words. When you're leaving an interview, you're walking down the stairs thinking, "Huh, I should have said something much more impressive. Or you're leaving the interview and you think, I could have said this witty thing in reply instead of just Goggling like a fool. Anyway, Greg Jenner. So he came on the podcast to talk about his new book, which is Ask a Historian's brilliant idea. He sourced questions from normal people, civilians, folks, people out there on the internet, and they asked him things, and he went and researched it because he's a great historian. So good fun. I'm reading it to my daughter at the moment; she's loving it. Uh, his podcasts are great for all the family. He's just a great guy, lovely guy. Uh, so great talking to him about history. We talked about some myths, we talked about some misconceptions, we talked about some of the things he's found out for this book. So, enjoy. If you wish to go and buy some Christmas stuff, you can do so at historyhit.com slash shop. We've got the famous historical hoodies back. We have got the knitted horned helmet headwear. No Vikings wore horned helmets, we know that, but this is an amusing knitted helmet with horns on it. I'm not saying it's anything to do with the Vikings. That's you saying that, but I'm just saying that's what we sell. It's fine. It's a homage to Wagner's set designer in the 19th century who invented horned helmets. Whatever, just go and buy one. And also, if you're worried about supply chain, If you're worried about HGV drivers, your carbon footprint, we've got a digital gift. It's a beautiful thing. A subscription to History Hit TV. You go to the shop or you go to historyhit.tv, you can get yourself a little gift. You can give a gift to somebody else. A hard-to-buy-for auntie who loves history, projecting, because I have a very... I, she's not hard-to-buy-for, but I've got an auntie who loves history. Trust me. And she would love a History Hit subscription. That's what she's going to get. Historyhit.tv. Go and check it out. It's the world's best history channel. We've got documentary on everything from the Ice Age right the way to the Digital Age. It's all happening at historyhit.tv. TV. We've got some big adventures we're planning next year. We're going to be digging some big holes in the ground and we're going to be going to some of the most inaccessible places on planet Earth. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying, and you heard it here first. But in the meantime, folks, here's Greg Jenner being brilliant. Greg, thanks for coming on the podcast, bud. Pleasure. Maybe as the child of journalists, I, I came to history in a very current affairs. I'm not particularly interested in Henry VIII's codpiece. I'm really interested in, like, why... There is a war in Israel-Palestine, sure. Syria. Why certain borders are drawn with weird squiggles in the Whitehall in the 1920s. But it's amazing how many questions, just like pure history. They just want to know. <laughs> like, I mean, some of them are about those things, but yeah. a lot of them are just like, What was going on with Louis XIV's shoes? Like, I mean, it's amazing that there is that just fascination
1: for the encapsulated history. It's everything, which means that it's the history of hats and shoes and underpants, as much as it is the history of treaties and wars and imperialism. And so what I'm trying to do in the book a bit is scoop up a bit of everything. History of meringues is one of the questions that someone asked me, which I just loved as a question, because it's so specifically like, tell me about meringues, and it's like, yeah, all right, actually it's a great history because it's the history of sugar it's the history of uh, of changing culinary diets and and you know recipe books it's also about you know high status foods gradually becoming democratized down towards you know middle classes and then gradually anyone can buy meringue so you can kind of pick anything and track it and i tend to find that the objects the ordinary objects we don't give them a second thought they're often really interesting when you actually explore them i mean you have to convince people you have to sometimes go bear with me on this, but I do really enjoy the, the kind of ordinary and the banal, because I tend to find that those are really good ways to understand the bigger picture.
2: Totally, and you're so you're brilliant at that. You've made it your own. Uh, and what's really so interesting is the way you talk about yourself as a public historian, and this is interesting because you can't possibly be an expert in all these different things. In a way, you've cleverly shown your working as a, you're like a, I'm someone who is familiar with sources, familiar with ways to research, you ask me things you want me to learn and I'll go and learn them. You know, you're not like, hey, I'm the
1: oracle. No, God, I, mean, that, I mean, in the book, I have to ask historians sometimes. You yeah. know, the, the book is called Ask a Historian and sometimes I have to go, oh, I don't know, I'll ask a historian. Yeah, because the, no one can know everything. Of course not, it's impossible. But, uh, you know, we're trained historians. We know, how they, we know what a reliable source sort of looks like. We know roughly where to look. We can ask people, you know, in our line of work, we get to meet people all the time. So I'm very lucky to have a, a network of scholars who are experts in things and i can sometimes go to them and go is that legit and they'll go no <laughs> and you go all right scratch that but yeah I, I tend to see my job as a public historian as to be a kind of cheerleader for history and also to be a kind of increasingly what i'm trying to do actually is to, to step out of the conversation and bring other people in with me so when i'm doing podcasts i'm bringing historians in with me rather than doing the talking on their behalf because i can't know all this stuff you just can't know all this stuff and i think that's Good. I think it's nice to be able to say, I don't know everything, but here's what I found. Here's the reading I did. Here's the reading you can do as a reader if you want to follow up on it. Um, there's something I think quite important in admitting our <laughs> gaps in our knowledge. Um, you know, one of the questions I was asked in the book was about the history of sign language and the history of deafness and the history of um, assistive technology, you know, hearing aids and so forth. And I knew very little and it, it really struck me as like a hole in my knowledge. It's like, well, hang on a minute. This is a really, this is a huge history, right? This is, you know, there've always been deaf people and there've always been people who have had different communication needs and uh, different ways of interacting with others. And I've just, I've, I've never really studied them. I never looked at them. Probably don't even know many people from history who were deaf. I mean, Beethoven, you know, you kind of run out of names after three or four. It felt like a blind spot, you know, pardon the pun, but it felt like an area in my knowledge where I was, suddenly aware of my own absence of knowledge. So I was really lucky to be able to go to Dr. Jaipri Verdi, who's a specialist a scholar in the USA, and she helped me, uh, and I did a of reading, and I was able to sort of go, all right, okay, so we can get this, we've got a bit of this, we've got some sources here in ancient Greece, but really it's in the 16th century where we're getting some really fascinating actual records, marriage records, where wedding ceremonies are happening in sign language. And this is okay, and we have um, in the Old Bailey in the 1700s, we have the courts accepting sign language and interpreters as uh, witnesses in legal trials. And so sign language BSL only became an official language very, very, very recently in our lifetime. and yet in the eighteenth century it was accepted in a court of law. So the history of sign language sort of went backwards a bit because there were there were kind of regressive moves in the nineteenth century to sort of squash it and to teach deaf people or people who are hearing impaired to speak so they could fit in with society. You know, they were shamed in some way. So that to me felt like a history I didn't know enough about. And I was really grateful to the person asking the question because I got to educate myself and then I got to put that stuff in a book and hopefully other people can read it too. So I welcome uh, having my ignorance pointed out because it's a good opportunity.
2: Yeah, same. We're peasing the pod, buddy. On that note, my dad who's deaf says that the best tool ever invented was like a big hearing trumpet thing. Mm, yeah. And to this day, he's got, he has all the mod cons, you know they put little things in his ears, and he goes, The much the best thing is still holding up one of those Yeah, extraordinary. So, and actually the dark truth, of course, is that we all know academics have to teach courses that they don't know anything about as well. And they go away, and because they have stories, they're really good at it, they do the reading, yeah they do everything and then they go and teach it to students. You're not doing something deeply transgressive here.
1: I hope not. No, I mean, obviously, I mean, Mary Beard knows everything about everything, but like, yeah, sure, most scholars, most people, when you're, you know, going to university, whatever, the people who are teaching you are, are learning themselves as they go. They're developing, they're adding new knowledge, they're reading new books and new journal articles, they're going to conferences. The whole point of being a historian is to keep adding to your knowledge and also revising what you think you know. And if you come up with something and you look at it and go, I used to believe that, but I'm not sure it's true anymore, or someone's come along and challenged it, then you have to revise your opinion on things. the history there, rewriting history. But that's that's the whole point, isn't it? I mean, the whole point of the historian is to rewrite history. That's what we do, that's the whole point of history, is that if there was just a sort of set, concrete edifice of facts, we could just sort of go, you know, ding, 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 bang a couple more in and walk off. That's not what you do, is it? I mean, history is the rewriting of what we think the past was. It's not the changing of the past, it's the changing of our understanding of the past based on the questions we want to ask now, which reflects who we are and who we want to be as a society. So it's an ongoing discourse, it's everything. It's more than just, you know, it's not just sort of saying Lord Nelson was a bad man. He used to be a good man, but he's a bad man. Now, you know, we're not doing that. It's about saying, but there's this. Have we looked at this before? No, okay, well, let's now consider this. So, you know, rewriting the past, rewriting history, why we're here.
2: That definitely is fascinating. What are some of the other ones that you really enjoyed writing in this?
1: I mean, there are a couple that are just the really fun open-ended ones. So someone asked me which people from history would best be recruited to pull off a casino heist. And that's the kind of <laughs> you can spend hours, days, months just sort of going, oh, well, not that person, not this person. So that was fun because you can just, you know, assemble your own motley crew from history. Um, Presumably, you do need Alan Shuring in there just to do some... Quick- I went with Su Song, so he was the okay, sort of fine. Tang Dynasty Chinese scholar who was your sort of inventive tech genius. I mean, yes, he's slightly pre-Wi-Fi, but I reckon he could figure well, it out in an the
2: afternoon. Great Tang, you know, Industrial
1: Revolution. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, he was working on clocks and, and engines and all sorts, of, you know, water engines and he was a map maker and a, a scholar and a poet. He was just sort of this brilliant... He was sort of a, a Da Vinci type, a Leonardo type, but earlier and in China and I thought, well, he'd be pretty good at cracking a, you know, security system. Um, uh, and then, you know, we've got ancient Egyptian tomb robbers. So Amin Panafer was an actual Egyptian tomb robber. So he's your safe cracker. Uh, Diocles the charioteer, you know, the most highly paid sports person in, in history. Um, he would be your gateway driver. I mean, there's it's quite easy once you start doing it. I briefly considered Stalin because he'd been a bank robber in his youth, but he'd obviously shoot us all at the end of the film, and I just you know, I didn't yeah. want to, you know.
2: I take I take Harold Hardrada to be the muscle.
1: Yeah, cool. you, you might want a sort of big beefy fella, but I also went with Josephine Baker because she'd been a spy for the French Resistance in World War Two, and so she's glamorous and talented and funny and, and smart, brave as hell. But also, she used her celebrity to get past the guards, so she's your sort of. Know, she can get you through. It's that sort of whole Julia Roberts meta joke in Oceans 12 or whatever.
2: It is a much better game than the very tiresome game that I get asked on a bi weekly basis about who your historical dinner party would be.
1: Oh, yeah, I mean, that's a standard question, isn't it? Who would you have to a historical dinner party? Well, I would have. I'm twitching now. The... Twitching now. <laughs> so, what's else that you like? I enjoyed writing about the history of hay fever because that's one of the ones where you just sort of go, well, surely it's modern, no? And to a certain extent, yes. But the earliest reference we have is from medieval Persia. It's Al-Razi, you know, the Persian scholar uh, writing a 1,000 years ago. He's describing the symptoms and he's theorizing it's perhaps to do with the kind of the blooming of the rose bushes. So you kind of go, oh, that sounds about right. But in the 19th century, oddly, hay fever becomes a source of racial pride. Um, so it was misunderstood. So it was very quickly identified in the 1800s as being caused by pollen. But the problem is the guy, the guy who isolates this, he does a lot of interesting sort of um, experiments and sort of goes, "I think it's pollen," and everyone goes, "Oh, well done." And then he says, "And I think it only affects very rich white men who are intelligent," and, and everyone goes, "Yeah, that sounds that sounds legit." So the, the theory basically put forward was that uh, hay fever was a Neurological disease that affected people of superior breeding and that it was a a proof of You know the supremacy of the white race and particularly the martial male um, So women didn't get it so much and so it's understood as being something that a sort of you know Upper middle class white British man might get but not his servants. Only real men can't go out on a summer's day Weeping and sneezing. The guy who isolated this He noted that sort of farm workers weren't getting it and he was so close to sort of going Well, maybe it's because they're exposed to pollen and they've developed immune strategies But he sort of went no, no, it's because they're low-class and this chap over here fancy Therefore so you end up actually with this Curious sort of racial hierarchy whereby hay fever is a proof of your Your higher status.
2: It's like that bonkers milk thing that you see people doing on the internet today. There's like a, there's like a fascist milk meme, you know? There's fascist meme for everything,
1: isn't yeah, it? Yeah, but like
2: because like, well, Anglo-Saxons can drink milk or something. So. Well, yeah,
1: because that's to do with the genetic um, distribution of the kind of, you know, the the lactase persistence yeah. sort of which is, you know, develops out the Neolithic where in the Neolithic we uh, there is a sort of uh, evol- evolutionary random mutation whereby people can suddenly process animal milk. And some people can and some people can't. And obviously that gene gets passed on and it gets spread through Europe. And then gradually it spreads through the world in in certain places. So in parts of Africa it's, some people have it in parts of Africa they don't. In China it's often not that common. So there are more people in the world who are lactose intolerant than there are people in the world who can drink milk. So, you know, I drink milk quite happily, but I'm in the minority in terms of the global population. So yes, there are ways of sort of understanding that in a very racist, kind of way but it's, it's just pure random mutation it's just a random quirk that kicked in you know six thousand years ago in the neolithic you're
2: listening to dan snow's history i'm talking to greg jenner more coming up
0: there are stories to tell myths to explore legends that shaped the medieval world to captivate the imagination i'm matt lewis and with my co-host dr kat jarman i've gone medieval we're waiting here for you to join us. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and let everyone know that you've gone medieval with History Hit. Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yanaga. This April, dive into our special miniseries.
2: Okay, here we go. There's one that I love, which is a bit of a military history one, which is, what is the least consequential but most famous battle that's entered the public consciousness?
1: (laughs) Ian, you naughty man. Go on, Ian has asked that. (laughs) As I answer in the book, I cannot even give an answer without people throwing uh, bricks at my head, because this is the question that so many people get very, very passionate about. Military history, overrated battles, there's entire corners of the internet dedicated to it. Uh, And you know way more than me about military history. It's a thing that is more of your passion. I've always sort of enjoyed it at a distance, but I'm more of a social historian. I like the kind of, you know, the the smaller stuff. But I'm half French. And so growing up, my mum and I would always sort of tease each other a bit about, you know, uh, Nelson, Napoleon, Waterloo and Azincourt, as my mum would call it. Agincourt to the, the Brits. And I would argue, and I have indeed argued, very recklessly, and I'm sure I'll be cancelled now. But I would argue that Agincourt is wildly might, overrated, but right extremely there, like, famous, yeah. and it's a huge military victory. I mean, it's, I'm not, you know, in any way saying it's not a big win. It's a huge. Why do win. you hate the veterans so much? Greg? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you know, it's a big, no, it's a big battle, and it's a crushing defeat. Yeah. Crushing defeat, thousands killed. I but mean, the cream of the royal family, you know, mullered, but the truth is is that the consequences of that in terms of the the politics of France in terms of the politics of what henry v is trying to achieve it swings the pendulum so far in one direction that it swings back more aggressively the other way you know he he goes from being embroiled in this slugfest of a war you know the hundred years war has been going for what 70 years or something by the time he gets there um, and he is trying his best to grab an advantage he's a talented young soldier obviously we know this he's very very impressive on the battlefield but He gets all this funding from Westminster, and he splurges it all on ships and arrows and wagons and men, and he takes them off to France, and he wins this sort of backfoot battle where he's basically trying to run away, (laughs) and the French intercept him, catch him, but they, you know, the bad weather, bad tactics, Welsh longbowmen, hooray, etc., etc. We know the story, but the truth is, is that once he wins that battle, and once the... The cogs change in French political machinations and you get you know obviously there's been a split between the two factions in France and so you've got you know the Burgundians on on the one side who who sort of hate the Armagnacs and they're sort of siding with the English a bit and so he manages to divide these two French political parties but he then loses his funding from London, he loses Westminster all that cash because he now becomes a French problem because as soon as he becomes the heir to the French throne the English are like we don't care. <laughs> like.
2: Also, there's a massive pause. He, afterwards, he goes home. Yeah. And then he, has to, then he invades the whole... <laughs> the invasion of Normandy and the conquest of Normandy is like a whole separate campaign. <laughs> I like, mean, obviously sure. the French are weakened, but... They are. You yeah, know, yeah. I have to say, I think I might agree with you. I think if you really wanted to go absolutely bonkers, in the British context... Yeah. And there's lots of classical battles, which overrides, but I think you're, if you start, if you touch the third rail of Trafalgar and Waterloo, <laughs> which I think you could do, you could put quite
1: a persuasive I, argument, I, then you yeah. would, then
2: you would just, it would cause <laughs> a grid failure.
1: Uh, see, I would argue Waterloo is decisive and is important. I mean, I, I think Trafalgar, similarly, is one of those ones where you just can't necessarily play out the, I mean... Yeah, no, okay, no, no exactly. I actually, I, okay, one question I will throw at you, Dan. In the book, I argue vociferously against what-if history. And I argue that what-if history is enormously flawed and massively problematic and very enjoyable for a yeah. pub chat, but is hugely, hugely uh, railroaded down these lateral logical endpoints that yeah. we derive from what actually happened and which doesn't have any of the messy chaos no, it's like, that we can't predict. Like what
2: they all do is go, moment of messy chaos, like Union soldier finds Lee's lost order wrapped in a cigar before yeah. a major <laughs> battle, right? And then from that point, brilliant historians then go, that this will happen, that will happen, blah, 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 and It's like, no, but the, you're ignoring the whole proposition, which yes. is the messiness of the original. Exactly. It's so bizarre, Exactly.
1: And I, so I argue in the book that the problem with what-if history, or virtual history as it's called, I know it's a fascinating sort of hypothetical way of teasing out variables. I mean, there's, there's plenty to enjoy. I'm not anti the idea of sort of doing it gently. But what happens is the moment you deviate away from the actual known, you're, we just can't help become storytellers who are stuck in these sort of script writery uh, patterns of saying, well, this, ergo that, therefore this, therefore that. But it's a very determinative. It's very kind of domino-falls, domino-falls, domino-falls. And you just haven't got the chaos or the or the random or the chaos, you know. So uh, the example I give in the book is a very silly one. I'm being a bit silly in it. But I, I argue that, you know, had a different soldier been, you know, survived the First World War, you might have a different pop star who ends up as the king instead of Elvis. You know, and you might have had Elvis die because actually... The British Malaya rubber industry uh, goes through a slightly different tweak because of the First World War this and that, and that means that Elvis crashes his truck and he never becomes a pop star, which means you never get, you know, and you can just go a billion ways in every direction on every single question because history is chaos, you know, and every single thing leads to everything else. Hitler should have
2: died in the First World War. <laughs> Multiple wounds, for some reason <laughs> survived. The cockroach. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's madness. But, you know, now that that military restaurant, you could even... I mean, it's so naughty I can't even say it, but you could even talk to about the song there, couldn't you, as well?
1: Yeah, you know, I, I think the reason I chose Agincourt, A, because it's funny it's for naughtiest. me... It's yeah, the naughtiest, it's, no, good, it's a good ...because I'm French, one. it's a fun joke, but also Agincourt has this long cultural heritage in the First World War, you know, because yeah. the 500th anniversary happens during the First World War, so you get this secondary wave of people kind of, you know, valorizing the heroic English-Welsh victory in 1415, as they are, of course, once again in the fields of Flanders, the fields of France right, the in 1915. Of Lufth, yeah. yeah, exactly, and you know, and then you get the Angel of Mons and all that. And so, the reason I sort of chose it is because Shakespeare and then the First World War going to give it this sort of big oomph. And then you get Larry Olivier and the movie, and that's World War Two. That's that's the whole D-Day propaganda campaign. The film came out slightly afterwards, but it was designed to come out before D-Day. The idea of of using Agincourt as this martial rousing kind of, you know, we've done it before, lads, we can do it again. And yet, actually, Britain lost the war, England lost the war, you know, it's not, you know, the Hundred Years' War ends with the French victorious, and uh, Charles on the throne, Joan of Arc, all that. So these stories we tell about our own nations, about ourselves, they're fascinating, I enjoy them, they're great, but they can sometimes, we can slide into very easy ways of thinking, and it's sometimes it's quite useful to just go, yeah, but no. <laughs> On a side note, it's amazing how many battles we
2: celebrate which are crushing tactical victories but ended up being the winner ended up losing the war. In yeah. Fact, it's actually a completely extraordinary thing. But let's not go down that. <laughs> We've got, I've got some questions. I thought about this because you're asking a historian. There are definitely questions you
1: should never ask a historian. You are yeah. tweeting
2: about the Dark Ages and yes.
1: why you're lucky to Don't mention the Dark Ages. Um, don't
2: mention the Dark Ages historians. <laughs> they go bonkers. We
1: get so angry, they particularly so the medievalists. Angry. Yeah. Never say, um, did Vikings wear horned helmets? <sighs> that is my, that is, that is, that one goes straight through me, that one, that, yeah, that's, that, that hurts. Quickly explain why. Well, <laughs> firstly, massively impractical. I mean, if you got hit in the head with a horn, it would just go straight through your skull, you'd be killed instantly. But yeah, they don't have them. It's a 19th century opera tradition. It, it, it's just, it's Wagner. It's, you know, it's completely ring cycle. Was Julius Caesar born from a caesarean? So that's an interesting one, isn't it? Because at least you can see there's a sort of, you know, a linguistic link, but no. Um, you know, and, and Caesar salad also, <laughs> not him. Yeah, Some from Tijuana. That's a, that was a restaurant
2: owner in Tijuana, I think. Did medieval people believe the world was flat?
1: No, and that's a really common one. Isn't it? And we're seeing that coming back and people keep saying to me, yeah, but you know, people, they thought the world was black. He's like, no, they didn't. I mean, the Greeks knew it was, it was a sphere. Uh, I mean, even just a navigator, anyone gets on a ship, they can see the horizon dip down if you get onto, the, you know. It was just easy to prove with your eyes. You didn't even need mathematics or <laughs> astrolabes or anything. But no, people knew the, the world wasn't flat, although Columbus did think the world was slightly pear-shaped. But, you know, we don't love Columbus. Seems a bit of a jerk. Speaking of Chris Columbus, oh, no. did he discover America, Greg? <laughs> God, I'm gonna get cancelled, aren't I? No, I mean, he's sort of, he's looking for India. He blunders into Cuba, he thinks it's Japan. I mean, he doesn't discover America, he discovers the Americas, he thinks it's India, he thinks it's the Indies. He never sets foot in North America. I mean, the Vikings get there long before him, of course. But you know, it's still important. I'm not saying we shouldn't talk about him, but yeah. Uh, Were the Victorians prudish? No, no, they were filthy, the Victorians. I mean, goodness me, I don't know if you've ever seen Victorian pornography, but it's full on. Um, they No, they, they love jokes, they love slapstick, they love puns, they were quite naughty, they were very inventive. know, I mean, if you look at early Victorian cinema, it's very, very clever and shrewd and funny, and, and you know, this is 1895, 96, they've literally invented the camera, you know, the moving um, footage camera, like, that year, and they're already doing really inventive things with it, including kissing. You know, they're, they're quite risque. And, yeah, Victorian porn is... You know, it's not just sort of people's ankles. So, no. Did Napoleon have small man syndrome? He was average height! I mean, come on! I mean, we know this! I don't know how tall you are, but you you tower over me. So I guess in in comparison, I should have small man syndrome. But I don't even know if there is such a thing. You know, I think when we look at Napoleon, we see someone who is sort of driven by this impulse to conquer and, and be glorious. But a lot of that we can track to his childhood. You know, and the fact he grows up reading obsessively about, you know, Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar. And even when he's in Egypt, he's sort of fanboying about all the places that his heroes have trod. So as a boy, when he was very small, in fairness, he was already an egomaniac. He's already on that path. It's relatable, unfortunately, for me. Uh, Did Newton discover gravity when an apple fell on his head? So this is where we get into sort of... uh, Oh, nearly, but not not entirely. I mean, obviously, the story is told to us from Newton's friend, whose name's escaped me for a second, but it's an antiquarian who tells the story of sitting in a garden with Newton and saying that was the tree where the apple fell and I first thought about it. So, you know, we're, we're in a sort of ballpark sort of fair, but it's not quite true kind of territory.
2: Okay, other questions. This is, excuse how bizarre these are, but this is just a thing that's happening, great
1: <laughs> What's the last question about history that left you completely stumped? So I, I do mention it in the introduction to the book, someone asked me, has anyone ever painted a um, tunnel on the side of a mountain and convinced someone to drive into it? Which I loved. And uh, you know, the only thing I could imagine was that Wiley Coyote write that question because it's a brilliant thing. And I was like, oh my God, where do I start? And I'd started looking into the history of early cinema and Cecil B. DeMille in the hope that someone, a set designer had accidentally drawn a you know, road tunnel on. I just couldn't find anything. So I was stumped by that. Fully stumped. Yeah. Give us another question that got left out of your book, Ask Historian. I was once asked by a child, was Jesus sad that all the dinosaurs had died? And I had no idea how to understand it. You know, like, just I couldn't, I, like, theologically, I just went, oh, my word, that's so sophisticated. It was a small, small girl. She asked it in a big crowd of people. Everyone laughed and then everyone sighed silent and went, oh, that's a really good question, <laughs> actually. Good point. Let's all just move on. Um, so, yeah, don't know how to answer that one. When you were young, what big
2: questions of history did you want to know the answer that you couldn't?
1: Find. So when I was a kid, I wanted to know how did knights go to the toilet in their armor? I've answered that in the book. When I was an archaeology student, I wanted to know how how can you tell if a hand axe is a hand axe or a bit of rock? A piece, yeah, and I, a I've story. answered that in the book as well, because actually that one I, I spoke to Dr. Becky Sykes, who's a Neanderthal expert, and she sort of walked me through how we do actually identify. it. So that was nice. I finally got to answer that question.
2: Um, If you could spend five minutes with one object lost from history on a table in front of you, what would it be? Object.
1: Ooh. That is very difficult, isn't it? Oh, that's very frustrating because I'm tantalised by so many things that are lost now. I, I would really like to see Plato's alarm clock. So 2,400 years ago, Plato apparently invented a mechanical water-based alarm clock, apparently to wake up his lazy students, as far as we can tell. But we don't know what it looked like. And I'm just, yeah, I just, I'm intrigued. I just want to know how much effort did he go to? Surely he just clang a kettle. he just bang it next to their heads. Get up! But um, yeah, I'd like to see Plato's alarm clock, please. What's the weirdest place you've been recognised? I don't get recognised very often, thankfully, which is very nice because I... I just don't know what to do. I get very weird. But occasionally I have been recognised in slightly odd, sort of historical locations where you're hoping people <laughs> don't recognise.
2: the best place. You just go and hang out at National Trust properties. There. So Globe- this is Greg Jenner, by the way. <laughs> uh,
1: the Globe Theatre probably would be the one, yeah. OK, so if you had a time machine, would you use it to travel to the past or the future? Oh! Uh, uh- Well, the future is going to be a kind of apocalyptic hellhole, right? It's going to be like super hot and you know sandstorms and a nightmare. So the past sounds safer, although you know plague less fun. I'm going to go back. I think 1968, something like that. I want to go back. I want to see Jimi Hendrix play. Feels like a sort of fun time to be, you know, young, going out in London, go see some bands. The fashion's pretty good. Yeah.
2: Um, Who is one person alive today that we talked about in 500 years' time?
1: Interesting and that's a really difficult question to answer because I think well I think one of the problems of being historians We just don't know how future generations will remember us and in the book I've tried to answer that someone asked me what will we be known as what will our generation be called? You know, are we the Elizabethan's are we the You know the internet people the internet age are we gonna be called the you know the screw-ups and so it's really hard to know who will be famous in the, you know in medieval times right Chaucer Boccaccio and so on they are clinging to the idea of glory and fame And they're hoping that they will be known 500 years from now That's what they were aiming for so I guess if you were to apply that that kind of model I guess Elon Musk would love to be known in 500 years time, but who will be known? Tough isn't it? I would have said Neil Armstrong
2: while he was alive.
1: No, because Neil Armstrong is one of those fascinating like he was so famous and then he was completely not famous for a bit. Buzz Aldrin ended up working in a car dealership, and extraordinary. He walked the moon, and he ended up selling used cars. And there's a kind of bizarre drop off the intensity of being ludicrously famous, and then the kind of the plummeting off. So, um, fame is a really odd. You know, my last book was about the history of celebrity, and I'm fascinated by those sort of surge, those you know peaks and troughs where people get rediscovered. So, five hundred years from now, you know Trump is perhaps the most famous person on the planet right now. You'd hope. Yeah, we hope, yeah. <laughs> but, As starts
2: a nuclear war or something. Yeah.
1: But that's the problem, isn't it? I mean, and, and who, who's going to get remembered in 500 years? Are we, are we still here in 500 years? I mean, you hope yeah, so. I mean,
2: presumably there could be someone alive today that no one's heard of who will be the first person to live till 200 or 1,000 years old, in which case they'll be the person. Who, Maybe. You know, so I think it feels to me like a science and
1: engineering... Yeah, I, probably. I mean, I can imagine that ultimately that there's, you know... I don't know Greta Thunberg may, may yeah. save the planet. Jeff Bezos, if he, I mean if I'm like... Well, yeah, he I might just Jeff, found his own colony.
2: Yeah, <laughs> and I think if he <laughs> succeeds, yeah, it, it, who knows. I mean, it's a difficult if he one. renames a moon, Bezos
1: moon, and you know, we go live on it, then maybe... If he just moon. ends up as a dictator for life
2: in the US, then I think it'll be him. <laughs> um, who is the person for this you'd like to sit down with
1: a pint of well, a fight with? I'm a teetotaler, so I would have a lemonade, of but I would absolutely love to spend an evening with Nell Gwynn. I think she's uh, hugely underrated. People sort of think of her as sort of salty, you know, pretty witty Nell, she was called, but she was extremely funny, very, very charismatic, completely understood the comic timing, which is a, a rare skill that people have or they don't have and she was just sort of fascinating and very Kind of courageous and just natural charm. And I suspect spending an evening with her just would be like being hit by kind of, you know, uh, a, a blast of just charm, charisma, wit. You know, obviously she was pretty beautiful as well, but I think there's something about her that everyone just loved her. And I'd, I'd love to spend some time being in that aura, I think. If you could be a fly on the wall of a particular moment in history, what would it be? Jimi <sighs> Hendrix? Really well, no, I mean, I'd love to see him play, but um, fly on the wall, oof. That's hard, isn't it? I mean, what would you go with? I'm going to throw it back at you. Come on, give it. I would have seen. I'd like to have seen a um, a big naval battle. Okay.
2: The idea of over forty ships, the size of HMS Victory, all sailing around each other.
1: So a sort of a, a sort of the golden age of sail. Yeah, I yeah. just
2: like a bizarre, like a totally extraordinary spectacle.
1: Yeah, and the storms you get afterwards as well. Yeah, you know that. Storms um, afterwards. Whereas I'd probably go for something a lot more tedious. <laughs> I'd probably go for like you know something small and intimate. I'd love to see, you know, the moment that Leonardo da Vinci, as a young apprentice, painted a hand and his you know, Verrocchio went, oh, holy crap. It's all right, kids go game. <laughs> yeah, or 5th
2: century BC Athens or I don't know, it's just, it's an
1: impossible question, it's painful to even answer There's ask a
2: it. billion answers you <laughs> Sorry, could give. Um, which, what historical era would you find least
1: appealing as a tourist? Uh, that is a good question. I mean, I think <laughs> I would be fascinated by everything, of course, Because we're historians, but I suppose I'm not particularly drawn to the 20th century. I tend to, you know, I do a lot of my work as pre 20th century because I tend to think the 20th century is very well covered by other historians who are much better than me at that stuff. So I don't really have any huge inkling or inclination to go back to you know, any of the kind of big landmark moments of the 20th century, other than seeing Jimi Hendrix play. That's my, you know, that's a night out. That's not me. I'd to ask the final question, if you hadn't become a historian, what job would you be doing? Oh, I always thought I'd be fascinated by neuroscience. So, you know, I'm interested in what makes people tick, you know, I think historians are, we are nosy, we, we are puzzled by human motivation and behaviour, um, all those emotions of guilt and, and rage and ego and all that. And I, I think I'd like to know the kind of, the chemical processes and the pathways and patterns that, you know, give rise to those sorts of things. So, yeah, I'd, I'd probably go into brain science or something. Greg, I'm very glad you became a historian, though. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Cheers. I feel hand of
2: history on our shoulders. All the tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished. Thanks, folks. You've reached the end of another episode. Hope you're still awake. Appreciate your loyalty. Sticking through to the end. If you fancied doing us a favour here at History Hit, I would be incredibly grateful if you would go and wherever you get these pods, give it a little rating, five stars or its equivalent. A review would be great please head over there and do that. It really does make a huge difference. It's one of the funny things the algorithm loves to take into account. So please head over there, do that. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds